First Chronicles this morning. First Chronicles. If you're visiting with us, uh, if you don't have a copy of the Bible, um, there's a pew Bible there. You can have it. Uh, it's the, uh, the black bound hardback. You can take that with you. Um, you can use your phone. You can use your tablet. If you're not familiar with First Chronicles is, um, it's in the Old Testament. It's about a third of the way into the book, uh, into the Bible. It's on page 356 in my Bible is where we're going to be today. Um, but uh, if you get to Psalms, you can open to the middle. Usually your Bible will open kind of Psalms, Psalms Proverbs, in that range. It's to the front side of Psalms in First Chronicles uh, chapter 29. First Chronicles is a history book. First Chronicles gives us um, a lot of the history of, of Israel. And, and just to give you a little uh, snippet of what I'm talking about, you've got 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, and Second Kings, and they highlight uh, the work of God in establishing the kingdom of Israel, and it highlights the work of the kings. Well, First and Second Chronicles are kind of like the Reader's Digest version of First, Second Samuel, First, Second Kings together. And if if you're Hebrew, um, this is the last book of your of your Bible. It's the last book of the Hebrew Bible um, as it recounts the history before we get into the the New Testament. And and we're looking again at, at giving and, and at ownership. And we had a neighbor when we lived in South Carolina, um, really good neighbor. We had some really good neighbors uh, where we were. And, and I had one neighbor in particular that every now and again, he'd asked me to borrow something. I uh, had an angle grinder. He wanted to borrow that to work on something, a little Dremel tool. And he'd always ask me if he could borrow that. Uh, and he was usually pretty good about bringing those back right when he was finished. But I had a hedge trimmer that he borrowed. And, and I never saw it for like three years, which really wasn't a big deal because the bushes in front of our house, we only had like four bushes in our yard and they really didn't grow very fast. I don't know why, but like the little boxwoods that were in the front, when we moved into the house, they were like this tall. When we moved last summer, they were this tall. Um, they really didn't grow. We had one bush that did grow pretty good, um, but you know, I never trimmed it. So, you know, it's okay. Um, it would just right, happen to be right at the downspout of the gutter. So like it got the extra rain and water and everything. Um, and, or, or, or I had, had a light, a construction light, um, one of those really, really bright halogen lights that was on a, on a stand. There were two of them that you could put out. And, um, and he borrowed that. He was doing some re- remodeling at his dad's house. Um, and, and so he needed to use that and he borrowed it from me. And, and when he brought that one back after like I needed it and I was like hey Wiley can I get that that light back from you sometimes oh yes at my dad's I'll have to get it in like two weeks later did you ever get that light from your dad's oh yeah let me get that light well when he brought it back he said look I don't know if the bulbs work it's been like a year since I used the light but if the bulbs are burned out I'll replace the bulbs he always took really good care of the stuff that I let him borrow because it wasn't his he, he knew that it didn't belong to him, and so if it broke, where if it's yours and it breaks, you might say, okay, well, you know, I'll fix that or replace that later. But if you borrow it from somebody and you break it, you kind of feel obligated to go ahead and fix it, right? Like if, I, if you said, Evan, can I borrow your car? Um, I, I, I need a vehicle, mine's in the shop. Can I borrow your car for, for two days? Sure, and I let you borrow my car, and as you're driving, um, you rip the steering wheel off. Um, I would expect that before you gave him a car back, you would fix the steering wheel, right? If it was yours, you might put a pipe wrench on it and just try to drive with the steering shaft like this and, and, and be fine. But if it's somebody else's car, you want to take better care of it because you know it doesn't belong to you. Well, the big question that we ask ourselves today is, if God let me borrow something that was his, 
If God placed for a temporary amount of time a possession of his in my possession, how well would I take care of it? How, how well would I take care of something that was God's? I mean, we take pretty good care of our neighbor's stuff, right? We take pretty good care of stuff that we borrow from everybody else. But what about when it comes to what belongs to God? So if you've got your place in 1 Chronicles chapter 29, I'm going to invite you, if you're able, to stand with me as we read the word of God together, looking at what happens in the history of Israel and what David says about possessions and ownership and who all this stuff belongs to in the first place. And we find these words, starting in verse 10. Therefore, David blessed the assembly, excuse me, blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly. And David said... Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and that is in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, O God, and praise your glorious name. But who am I? And what is my people that we should be able thus to offer willingly? For all things come from you, and from your your own have we given to you. For we are strangers before you and sojourners, as all our fathers were. Our days on the earth are like a shadow, and there is no abiding. O Lord our God, all this abundance that we have provided for building you a house is for your holy, for your holy name comes from your hand and is all your own. I know, my God, that you You test the heart and have pleasure in uprightness. So in the uprightness of my heart, I have freely offered these things. And now I have seen your people who are present here offering freely and joyously to you. Let's pray together. Father, we sing together that you are the king of our heart. We sing, Father, seeking to exhibit the uprightness of our heart before you, our God, our Savior, our Redeemer. Lord, we thank you for loving us. We thank you for the ability to love you. We ask you, God, that you would place your spirit in us, place your spirit among us, and that you would fill us anew and give us ears to hear your word that we could give freely and joyously because of how wonderful you are. Father, we love you. We thank you for the faithfulness that you have shown towards us and that you sent us your son, Jesus Christ, to save us, to wash away our sins. And we ask this in your name, amen. Thank you, you may be seated. So just a, just a quick show of hands. How many of you have heard, of, heard a sermon from the book of First Chronicles before? How many of you have heard a sermon from the Bible before? 
All right, so the, the, okay, okay. So it went drastically up. First Chronicles really isn't one of those books that's like the go-to for, hmm, what am I going to preach this Sunday? I think I'm going to go to First Chronicles and see what it has to say. And, and, and it's because of, of the nature of First Chronicles. A lot of times, if you have heard anything out of First Chronicles, there was a lot of time spent in maybe First or Second Kings or First and Second Samuels giving the fuller story of, of what you're about to, about to read. Well, let me kind of catch you up to where we are in First Chronicles and what's going on in the life of David. So, so most of you know who David is. David was the king in Israel. He was the second of Israel's kings. He came after Saul. And, and David was the man that was named the man after God's own heart. Man, he was a shepherd boy. He was the youngest of Jesse's seven sons. He was the least likely of Jesse's family to become king, but he was the one that God chose because oftentimes, and most of the time actually, God uses ways and means that we wouldn't expect to do his purpose, to do his will, because he wants us to know that he's in control and he's in charge. So, so wherever you are, you're not too far out of the picture for God to use you because he uses people like us. He's like, well, David was the man after God's own heart. That's not me. David was kind of a messed up dude. I mean, we, we, we all have messed up people in our lives and in our families. All of our families have something going on that we're a little bit ashamed of. All of us have that, that crazy aunt or that crazy uncle. We all got them. Or we are the crazy aunt or crazy uncle. All of us have that cousin that we ask for mom and dad not to invite to the family reunion next year. We all have that. We all have those grudges and those, those fights in among our family. I mean, that was David. David, the man after God's own heart. Yeah, he's the one that committed adultery with Bathsheba and then had her husband killed. Sounds like a man after God's own heart to me, right? David, the man whose daughter was raped by her half-brother and he did nothing about it. David, the man who spent two years of his time as king running from this son, the brother of that daughter that did not want his dad to under, he wanted his dad to understand that vengeance had to be taken for the crime committed against her. David, who turned his eyes blind towards justice. This is the guy after God's own heart. All in all, God had redeemed David, and in spite of his shortcomings, God used David to do some amazing things as the king of Israel. Well, one of the things that David wanted to do was to build a temple for God. He wanted to build a building. So he had this really cool palace. He had this awesome castle. And one day, it says over in the book of First or Second Samuel, that David's looking around. He's like, wait a second. Here I am clothed in splendor and glory. Here I am with this awesome palace and this awesome place to live, but God's living in a tent. I can picture David standing there on, on the portico of the palace and he's looking out and he sees the temple of meeting. He sees the tabernacle over here. And I'm not talking about one of these nice, fancy, like, go camping for a week tents. I'm talking about something that was made out of leather and skin and hide that had been moved from place to place to place to place for generations with the people of Israel and finally had a resting place in Jerusalem, but it had been put up and taken down, put up and taken down, put up and taken down, put up and taken down. And it was a tent. And David's looking at it and says, this is not right. I'm living in luxury, but God is over there. His presence is dwelling in a tent. So I'm going to build something for him. And God says, David, you're my boy and all, but you've got, some, you've got too much in your past. You've got blood on your hands. 
You are a king of conquest. You have led battle and led war. I can't let you build my house. But your son will. Your son Solomon, who will be a king of peace, who will be one that rules in peace because he is the one that I have decided of your children will be the next in line. And it's from his line that our Savior, Messiah, will come. I promise that he will be the one to build a house. So David says, okay, okay, Solomon can build the house, but God, can I at least raise the money for it? So where we find ourselves in 1 Chronicles chapter 29 is immediately after David has done this massive capital campaign and emptied the treasury of Israel. And then in verse 6 of chapter 29, calls on the elders, the leaders of the tribes of Israel to bring a free will offering in order to see that the house of God is complete and made in its glory and splendor. And you can read all the stuff that was they brought, they gave for the service of the house of God, 5,000 talents and 10 thousand derricks of gold just so you know a talent's about 75 pounds so that's a lot of gold 5,000 times 75 is a lot and that many pounds of gold Uh, 10,000 derricks a derrick is about a fourth of a pound so right there you're looking at 2,500 pounds of gold that is a lot and then the silver And then the bronze, and then the iron. And it says in verse 8, Whoever had precious stones gave them to the treasure of the house of the Lord in the care of Jehiel the Gershonite. I mean, the people of Israel, at a moment's notice, they saw what was going on, and they saw what was being asked of them, and they just emptied it. They emptied it. They said, we're not hanging on to this. We're giving of God. And so giving to God and giving of ourselves. And it's in that where we pick ourselves up in verse 10 that David stands before all of the assembly of God and he blesses the Lord God for what has just taken place. Because what he is describing to us is the ability to see who really owns it all in the first place. Who truly owns all of this in the first place? And I want to share with you, you've got them listed there on your sheet with you, but I want you to walk with me through this passage of scripture as we look at what happens to us and what what takes place when we see God's ownership and what that means for giving. And the first is that God's eternal glory provides a perspective on possessions. The eternal glory of God provides some perspective when it comes to possessions. He says in verse 10, Therefore David blessed the, assemb- blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly. And David said, Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Right there in the middle of what David is showing us, comes the eternality of God. You were God before we got here. You're going to be God long after we're gone. And he says over in verse 16, he says, O Lord, our God, all this abundance we have provided for you, building a house for your holy name comes from your hand. It's all your own. Excuse me. Uh, Verse 15, sorry. Our days on the earth are like a shadow and there is no abiding. David's, he's contrasting the eternality of God and the temporality of man. We can amass and amass and amass and amass and amass for ourselves and one day we're going to come to that critical mass of life where this life is no more and what happens to all that we've amassed? Your family fights over it. 
You can have a, you can have a watertight and airtight will and your family's still going to fight over it. All of this is great and good. We build it up here for this, but it's only here. But in God's eternality, he owns it all for all time. And the, and the perspective of possessions is placed directly in conjunction with the eternality of God because he was the one that brought it into existence and he will be the one that's still here when it's no longer in existence. That's kind of big. That's kind of big. It's kind of like a kid playing with Play-Doh. As long as that kid wants to sit there and mold and make and do something with Play-Doh, the Play-Doh is getting used and it's pliable and it's rigid. And that kid can go and make something with Play-Doh and set it out there and leave it there. And then when the kid decides, he can put the Play-Doh in the can, but the kid didn't quit. It's just the stuff he was using quit. Or a kid with Legos, or a man building a house. Well, you name it, whatever happens, the one who is the creator exists beyond the creation. Everything we have, everything we have has to be looked at through the perspective of the eternal ownership of God. The God who said, let there be light. The God who said, let there be an expanse. The God who said, let there be birds and fish and seas and stars and then said, let's make man and made us in his image. He spoke it all into existence because he already existed. But this is not just a statement about the spiritual kingdom of God. Look at what David says here. He says, yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory, verse 11, and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. You're above all, you're beyond all, you created all. So all of this is yours, you're beyond it, you're outside of it. And he says there, O Lord, yours is the kingdom. I do not believe that, Peter, that David is speaking specifically about this spiritual kingdom. Because I think we can get high and mighty church about that sometimes. But, oh, super spiritual. It's all, oh, it's all about the spiritual. It's all about, it's all about the spiritual kingdom. David was the king in Israel. But David understood that his kingdom, where he physically stood, was an extension of who God is. Not who God was. Who God is. Are there spiritual implications to this? Absolutely. But David is making a physical statement about where he was sitting on the throne before the assembly of the people of Israel. It's like, this kingdom that I'm looking out over, as far as my eye can see, as I can see the city wall of Jerusalem, as I know that our borders go to beyond the Sea of Galilee and down into, into, into the valley, as far as I know that this is the land that you have promised and you gave to our son Abraham, it's yours, God. It is yours. We are in a spiritual kingdom of God as brothers and sisters in Christ, as those that have professed faith in Christ Jesus. But what God is looking at here is the physical possession that is his. And because of that, we start looking at this verse 12 where he shows us both riches and honor come from you. And you rule over all. Maybe one of the hardest statements that I'll make in this sermon today 
comes out of this verse. And that's simply this. Any wealth that you and I have was given to us. It wasn't necessarily earned. Anything that you have, it could be a John Deere tractor. It could be a snapper riding mower. It could be a remote control car or a Game Boy. DS for all you kids. They don't make Game Boys anymore. It didn't have to be given to us in a package under a Christmas tree or at a birthday present. It was given to us by the hand of God himself. There is something to be said about working hard. There is something said about getting a good education, getting a good job, and providing for yourself. But we can't establish that we have made ourselves. It was given to us by God. Is there some earning that takes place? You better believe it. But it was earning that was provided by the hand of our maker, God himself. And David is blessing God in the presence of all the people of Israel and says, both riches and honor come from you. Not from a title. I I am personally honored to bear the title of lead pastor, senior pastor, pastor, whatever you want to call it, of First Baptist Church of Fairbridge, Georgia. I'm we're not in Jordan. That's another country on the other side of the world. Favorite Georgia. I'm personally honored by that. But, but the honor doesn't come from a title. The honor comes from the title giver. From the hand of God. CEO. CFO. President of a corporation. Mechanical engineer. School teacher. Wherever you fit with a title, the honor's not the title. The honor comes from God. And there is a stain that does come in the eyes of society, but what is truly honorable comes from God. The position of honor was given by God. Yeah, I was up for that promotion. Well, you might have been, but it came from the hand of God. Did you work hard? You better believe it. You worked as a workman approved by God, working as unto God and not unto man, but it came from God. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. It's hard for us to stomach in Western civilization, in America, where the American dream is to have a wife, 2.5 kids, a dog, Nobody wants a cat. And an offense and all that. Some of you want cats. I know. I'm sorry. Don't fill up my email box with that. I'm sorry. I'll pray for you cat people later. And it, that's the American dream. As far as you want life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Well, what makes me happy? I'm going to run after it. Well, it's not a matter of what makes you happy. It's what makes you Holy. And seeing God as the eternal possessor of all things and that it's by his hand that we do have what we do have, then we start seeing the holiness that comes and yields oftentimes a joy that's beyond happiness. But verse 13 brings us to a response. See, seeing God as the owner and ruler of everything 
brings us to one of two responses. Notice what happens in verse 13. It says, now, God, we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. It's because we're looking at the eternal ownership and what God has provided that that David now says, we thank you and we praise you. And, And there is a necessary response that comes out of the possessor of the the understanding that God is the possessor of all and has given and provided for us. And and the first one is very, very blatant. We can be thankful that God is our provider. See what happens there? And now we thank you, our God. David is speaking corporately on behalf of all of Israel. David is speaking to to God and he is speaking as the king of Israel about what God has just done. And it's because they have just overwhelmingly gave and it's because they have overwhelmingly provided that now David is looking at them and he is praising God and he says, I see that you are the owner of all and here's the response. I thank you for being a provider. See, this thankfulness goes beyond just God is great, God is good, let us thank him for our food. This, this thankfulness goes beyond just that, that time that, okay, I'm, it's, it's time to eat, so this is the only time I pray today is when I eat, so I'm gonna thank God for my food and then I'm gonna go on. Yeah, it's important to thank God for your food. It's important to thank God that, that he has provided. But, but it's equally important as to look through the rest of your life, not just mealtime, to thank God for what is in your life, for, for, for good or for bad, for, for, for greater or for worse, for your, the purpose of your holiness. But then the second response, the second response is that we could take God for granted and just assume that he owed us anyway. We, we could take God for granted and just assume that he owed us anyway, which is the exact case of the self-made man. Well, if God exists somewhere, then all that I have, I've made for myself, I've gotten here by myself, and so anything that's extra, well, well God kind of owed that to me because I'm an awesome person. Or, or, or God, well, you brought me into this world, God, so I'm, I'm, I'm going to admit that you're a creator and you're out there somewhere. You, you brought me into this world, so, so it was your prerogative, it was your responsibility, God, to make sure I didn't die. And yet, so I have all this stuff because you, you owed it to me. God didn't owe us anything. God didn't owe us anything. But out of love... Out of the joy within God himself, he provided that we could, could know him. And the indignation of presuming upon God and assuming that he just owed us anyway is the exact mark that Paul gives in Romans chapter one of the degradation of society. See, we could run to Romans chapter one and talk about, yeah, man, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it's the power of God and salvation, first the Jew, then to the Gentile. And we could run in there and start looking about, but see, some people didn't do that. And so they started worshiping idols and, and we could really get discussed and talk about how, well, yeah, so they, they turned to same-sex relations and that's just... That's just the mark of degradation of society. No, the mark of degradation in society comes in Romans chapter one where he says, although these people knew who God was, they refused to give him thanks. Uh, 
although people knew who God was, they refused to give him thanks. Just the assumption that, well, that's God's responsibility. He owed me this. I'm entitled to this because God just owes me. That is, that is the hallmark of a society that has spun out of control. And I fear it is too much of a stereotype, or not so much a stereotype, an actual type of American society. We've forgotten how to be thankful. And part of the reason we've forgotten to be thankful is because we've forgotten who really owns it all. And when that creeps into the church, when that creeps into God's people, we have this spiritual hardness, this spiritual blindness that causes us to grasp onto what we believe is ours and ours alone and forget the God who provided. But when we see that God is the owner, our response can be this joyful thanks. This opportunity, just like David, to say, and now we thank you, God, and we praise your great name. We praise your great name. Then he goes on in verse 14 and says, but who am I and what is my people, therefore, that we should be able to offer thus willingly? My ability to give is based on or is dependent on God's provision. My ability to give is based on God's provision. Our ability to give is based on God's provision. David comes and says, who am I? It's all yours anyway. So what are we doing here that makes us think that, well, it was just because of us that we gave. He said, it's because you have given to us. All things come from you and of your own, God, we have given to you. Wait a second. It's all yours and of your own we have given to you. See, David right here takes out the pompous self-entitled attitude that sometimes creeps into the church when it comes to giving. Like the guy that stood up in the, the church business meeting that time and said, hey, I want to write a check for $20,000 but I want to do it anonymously. Catch that? Yeah, catch that one. That, that, that oh, don't look at me, but still look at me. If we look at God's ownership, all that we're giving, and probably one of the weirdest experiences I ever had. It's happened to me a couple of times. First in 2003, when I was working with the youth, youth ministry in Macon while I was in college. And then again in 2009, when Christian and I moved to South Carolina, where I was an associate pastor for a couple of years. And, and you tithe that first time out of a paycheck you received from the church. It's kind of like, they just gave me this and now I'm going to write them a check. But it, it's just kind of a weird experience. But that's exactly what all giving is. Whether your paycheck comes from a church or comes from a school or comes from a law office or comes from, from, from an annuity, it all comes from the hand of God. So we're giving back to him. So, so let me, I'm going to sit down for just a second. Because I want to I, I, I walk through this. I want you to hear my heart. I, I really want you to hear my heart because I know giving sermons and good grief, you're getting four of them this month. So you know, we'll see how that goes. Um, I, I know they can put people on edge. I want you to hear, hear my heart. I don't want your money. 
this isn't a, let me give you four quick sermons on ungiving and let me give you four, uh, four weeks of feeling bad because you didn't give. I, I don't want your money. This isn't a get your money series. I want you to see God. I want you, whether you're 13, 30, or 100, or anywhere in between, whether you have 55 cents in your bank account or 55 million in stock options, I don't want your money. I want you to see God. I, I, I want you to see the goodness of God. I want you to see the hand of God. I want you to see the power of God. I want you to see the beauty of God. I want you to see the provision of God. But I want you to see that it's all God's. Everything. Whether it's broken or in like new condition, whether it's abundant or, or, or very, very, very meager. I want you to see it's about God. See, our ability to give is only, uh, we only have that ability because God has given to us, God has, because God has provided f- for, for me, for you. I, I wasn't able to, to go to our church website and click on the give online button and give except for that God had provided. And so whether it's a Mission Georgia offering, whether it's regular tithes and offerings, whether it's Lottie Moon, Annie Armstrong, any of the special offerings that we do, it's not a, well, you gotta give, 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 give. It's, I want you to see God. I want you to see who he is and what he's done. And that's where David brings his people. He says, all things have come from you and of, of your own you, we have given to you. Lord, all this abundance that we have provided for building you a house for your holy name comes from your hand and it's all your own. See, my goal in, in this I Give series, next week's the last week of, of, of I, the I Give series. My, my goal in this is, is to not make you feel down in the dumps because you didn't tithe last paycheck. My goal is that you see not your tithe check, not your offering to the church, but the money you use at Bojangles, the money you use at Walmart, the money you use to pay your light bill or your mortgage, the money you use on junk was given to you by God. That that it's all God's. See, stewardship is not really a whole lot about that 10%. And too often in the church, we major on making sure the 10%, the tithe, well, the Bible says the tithe, you got to tithe, you got to tithe. I believe in that. Trust me. I feed my kids because I believe in that. But stewardship's about that 90%. About the excess, about the waste, about coming into this realization that it's all God's to begin with. And so David, in blessing God in the, in the assembly in front of everybody, is not out there pounding them with this. We've got to give more. He's like, look at what God did. 
We have all of this because of God, because of God, because of God, because of God. It's all about God. What we can do is dependent on what God has done and is continuing to do and will do. You have a good year financially in 2017, praise God. You have a terrible year in 2017, praise God. God is the provider, God is the giver. What we have is dependent on what God is doing. All right, I'm gonna get off my stool now. It goes on in verse 17 and shows us that our recognition of God's ownership is basic matter of integrity. Look at what he says in verse 17. I know my God that you test the heart and have pleasure in, upright, in, in up, uprightness, in, in righteousness, in, in having an upright heart. See, recognizing that God owns everything is a basic matter of integrity because it brings us into the position where what we say we believe and how we act on that belief matches. So that's what integrity is all about. It's, it's, it's not an integrity statement for me to say that I believe in the sanctity of marriage, but spend my time either cheating on my wife or looking at pornography. Those are incongruous statements and they actually weaken my integrity because what I have said I believe and what my practice is are completely different. Such as saying that I believe God is the owner and provider of all, but refusing to honor him with how I use finances by refusing to give in the local church, by refusing to follow him. And, and I'm not asking you to pull your, pull your checkbook out and, and, and you know, reconcile all your differences with God for, right, for the year and, and what you haven't given. If you want to do that and God's led you that, praise God. You know, like I said, it's all from him, but praise God. I'm asking you to see the integrity issue. I know, my God, that you test the heart this is consistent throughout all of scripture, whether it's giving and finances related or, or marriage or, or telling a story to your mom and dad, cheating on taxes, going into massive amounts of debt, gossiping, lying, all of these. These are all heart issues that God tests the heart. He's looking at the upright and righteous heart. But we only have righteousness because God's given it to us through Christ Jesus. So again, we're looking at our ability to respond in righteousness, being dependent on what God has provided, which is the righteousness of Christ. And because we have the righteousness of Christ, you and I, as followers of Christ, have the ability with an upright heart to stand before God and honor him. Recognition of God's ownership is a basic matter of integrity. And let me nuance it a little, little bit different way. This is how Paul, uh, um, David goes on and says in the end of verse 17. He says, in the uprightness of my heart, I have freely offered all of these things. And now I have seen your people who were present here offering freely and joyously to you. Joy Joy wells within our hearts when we give freely. Joy wells within our hearts when we give freely because we're operating under the recognition of God's ownership. We're operating under the, the under idea and the understanding that it's all God's anyway. Anybody going to hoop and holler and shout when the offering plates are passed here in just a minute? Anybody? I dare you to. 
It should be an opportunity to praise God. See, this is why the offering time is, I believe, important in its placement in the worship service. The decision was made before I got here to move it to the end. And I know that was a little bit different. Personal preference. This is just me. Personal preference. And I'll tell you why. I like it at the end. And the reason I like it at the end is because it gives us the opportunity to view our giving as a response of worship to the teaching of the word of God. Not about me, about the word of God. It gives us an opportunity to look at what God has said. We've sung and we've sung and we've praised God and we come and we open our hearts as we open the word of God and we look at what God is saying. And in response to all that, we get to give because the point of the worship service is to give as God has given to us the ability to come together and worship. And so with joy and it builds with anticipation that we could come and we could give. Just think about what's going on in Israel right now. They're getting ready to build a temple for the first time a permanent building, a permanent structure that would stand in the center of Israel for all of them to remember the presence of God, the promise of God and what they were doing. And so they came and freely gave and freely brought and freely put all together and collected for the building of the temple, for the ministry of the Lord, for the service of the Lord, all of this together. And David says, I have seen with joyful hearts they have given. What if we looked at the offering time and the giving time within the church as the anticipating, as we build with anticipation, as the culmination of all of our worship together and with joy said, here comes the plate, let me give to my God who has given so much. What what if? What what if we started looking at everything and reevaluated all of our decisions financially and with our physical possessions, reevaluated everything in terms with how can I demonstrate my love for God and my appreciation for all that he has placed in my care? What what if? I don't know how you're going to answer that what if. But here's what I can say for sure. That you and I have the responsibility. We have the responsibility to honor God with the way we use his material possessions. His material possessions. They're in your use and they're they're at your uh, uh, disposal right now, but they're his. They're on loan. How will you use them? 